are starting a new series here at Whitefields. It's one that I'm uh, excited about. I've wanted to do this for a long time. I've thought about it for, uh, for months, actually. And the title of this series is Plot Lines. I call it The Stories That Tell The Story. And today we're going to kick this series off with uh, a study about the story of the Lamb. You know, you could say that the whole Bible is really a story about lambs, right? Uh, the gospel at its heart is the message, it's the story of a lamb. But at the same time, you could also say that the gospel is the story of a river, or that the Bible is the story of basically three trees. You could say that the Bible is a story about a garden or a city. Because throughout the Bible, what we have is these plot lines, right? These recurring themes that run through the Bible like a thread, right? From the beginning, through the middle, at the end, throughout all the different books, Old Testament, New Testament, we see these threads, these common themes that keep popping up over and over in every single part of the Bible. And when you, when you look at these stories, when you single them out and look at them on your own, what you find is that each of these stories, they're, they're like subplots within the main story of the Bible, and each of these stories on their own tells the story of the gospel in a unique way, in a moving way, in a profound way, and in a way that illuminates for us special aspects, certain aspects of who Jesus is and why he came. You know, the more you learn about the Bible and the way that it came to be in its current form, the more you realize what an amazing book this really is. Uh, what's amazing about the Bible is that it's not just one book, but it is uh, a collection of books. It is, it is not just one book that some guy sat down a while ago and said, you know what, I think I'm going to write some stuff about God. But no, the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by about 40 different people over a period of at least 1,000 1,600 years on three different continents in three different languages. The people who wrote the books of the Bible, they, they lived in vastly different places over a vast period of time. They spoke different languages. Most of them never met. They never sat down together to figure out what they were going to do and write about. But yet there's this incredible unity to the Bible. That when all these parts come together, they form this mosaic. And when it comes together, what you see is that there's one message. They all come together to tell one story. The story of God's work in the world to save us and redeem us. And these plot lines that I'm talking about, these threads, these common themes that run through the Bible, they are like the fingerprints of God. They are an evidence that this book is not the work of men, but it's inspired by God. So if you'll join me today, what I'd like to do is take you on a journey uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and I'm going to share with you the story of the Lamb. And, and I would put it this way. This is the story of the world in the story of the Lamb. The story of the Lamb starts in Genesis chapter 4. If you've got your Bible, please turn with me there. Genesis chapter 4. And this is what we read here in Genesis chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived again and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. 
So these are Adam and Eve's first two kids, right? Cain and Abel, they're pretty famous because we know about what's going to happen. Cain becomes the first murderer in history, killing his brother in cold blood. But the part of the story that I want to focus on and, and show you is this, the story of the lamb. See, the first chapter of the story of the lamb is found here in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel each bring an offering to the Lord. They make a sacrifice, right? And now, th now this begs the question as we get started. Where in the world did these guys get the idea that they should bring an offering to the Lord? Where did this idea come from? Because these guys are like persons number three and four ever, right? It's not like uh, there were traditions at that time, right? Because there weren't any people, right? So uh, it, it's not like other people have lived before them and, and there are traditions to follow and they're just doing what other people have always done. No, there's nobody else, right? They're, they're just... Uh, it's just these guys and their parents and probably some younger siblings. So if you would have asked Cain and Abel, now why are you guys giving an offering to the Lord? Uh, they would not have said, well, that's just what people do because there weren't any other people to do it, right? But, but yet here they are giving an offering to the Lord. Interesting. And look what they're giving. Cain, he's a farmer, so he gives some of his produce. And Abel, it says that he's a keeper of the sheep. He's a shepherd, so he gives one of his lambs. Now, we know that he gives a lamb because it says he gave one of the firstborn of his flock. And, and I know you guys know a lot about animals. You know that there are only two groups of animals that we use the word flock with. The one, of course, is a flock of sheep. And the other one is a flock of seagulls, which I also have a picture of here. Now, uh, the flock of seagulls, they weren't around until the 1980s, so I think we can conclude that this was, a, he's a keeper of the sheep, this was a lamb. He's offering a firstborn lamb. So he takes this lamb and he offers it to the Lord. He sacrifices it, right? What that means is that he takes one of his lambs that's alive and he slaughters it. He kills it as an offering to God and you gotta wonder like think about I want you to try and think about this as if you're just you have no background in this at all you're just reading this for the first time and you're like so this guy just takes this animal and kills it and that somehow makes God happy what in the world is that like you know is why is that pleasing God why would anybody do that and, and to make matters even more confusing like I said Cain he brings some vegetables to God and says, here you go, God, here's a bunch of vegetables. And, you know, like most of us, God is not very pleased with that. Weird, right? So the, the question is, where did Cain and Abel get this idea that, first of all, they should bring an offering to God in the first place? And secondly, why is God pleased that Abel killed the lamb? And, and why is he not pleased with Cain bringing him a bunch of vegetables? Right? This is a confusing situation here. To understand it, you got to go back with me one chapter, okay? To chapter 3 of Genesis. And this is really where the story begins. Before Cain and Abel were, were ever born. Cain and Abel's parents, you know their names, Adam and Eve. And they had a relationship with God. They were created and from the moment of their existence, they walked with God. They knew God. They had a, an intimate relationship with him. But something happened. Something terrible happened that ruined that relationship they sinned right God had given them instructions he said do it my way it will be good for you you will live but they said you know what we're gonna do our own thing we want to go our own way rather than do things the way you've told us to do and so you remember what happened when Adam and Eve sinned 
among other things, they were filled with a sense of shame. Do you remember that? They, they were filled with this sense of shame. They knew that they had effectively just ruined their relationship with God. And because of that, they tried to hide from him in shame. Now, trying to hide from God is obviously not a very reasonable thing to do. It's a very futile thing to do because God's everywhere and he sees everything. It's impossible to hide anything from God, much less to hide yourself from God. He, he sees and he knows everything, right? He sees even the, the, the secret thoughts of your heart. He sees even the motivations behind the things that you do. In, in Hebrews 4 verse 13, we read this, that nothing in all creation is hidden from the sight of God. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But although they tried to hide from God, they tried to cover up their shame, they couldn't. And I have to tell you this, for you and me, the same is true. No matter what we try to hide from God, no matter how much we try to cover up our shame or our, the things that we've done that are shameful, we can't. And so we read that they tried to cover themselves and it says that they made garments of, of uh, clothing out of fig leaves. Now, now, there are some reasons why fig leaf clothing has never really succeeded in breaking into the mainstream of the fashion market, you know. Uh, among other reasons, uh, clothes made with fig leaves, they're kind of drafty, you know. On a day like today, you certainly wouldn't want to be wearing clothes made out of fig leaves. The other part about clothes made out of fig leaves is they're itchy, they're uncomfortable, right? But here's what's interesting, and, and here's the point we're getting to. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. You know how you make garments out of skin? Well, you have to kill an animal. And here's the point. At the beginning of history, we see the first people sinned. As a result of their sin, they realize that they can no longer stand unashamed before God, and they try to cover themselves up, right? How many people do that? They try to cover up their sense of shame. They wear masks. They don't let people get too close, right? They try to cover themselves up because they realize they can no longer stand before God. They're, they're covered in this sense of shame and inadequacy. But God, they sinned against him. They, they disobeyed. They did the thing he told them not to do, but God, he still loves them. And because of his great love for them, even though they've sinned they, he, against him, he intervenes on their behalf and he says, guys, I see that you're uncomfortable in the coverings that you've tried to cover yourselves with. Those clothes you're wearing, they're drafty. They don't work very well. They're uncomfortable. Let me make a covering for you that will be sufficient for you. And so here's what he does. He, he kills an animal and makes clothing for them. You see, there was a cost to that covering that God gave them. Innocent blood was shed as a result of their sin. An innocent creature had to be slain so that they could be covered because of their sin and their shame. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture? So now here are their kids, years later, Cain and Abel. And despite the fact that it was their parents who sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, they are born into a world that is imperfect, a world where sin and death are present realities. And they have inherited their parents' sinful condition. And why are they bringing an offering to God? Here's why. It's to say thank you to God. That although they deserve judgment, because they're sinners, God has given them grace. He's blessed them. He's taken care of them and he's provided for them in spite of their condition. And, and why would Abel kill 
a lamb as an offering to God. And why would God look upon that offering as a good and acceptable thing? Here's why. Because what Abel is doing is reminiscent of the covering that God made for his parents. When God, in love and mercy, shed innocent blood to cover their sin and shame so they could stand before him once again even though they had sinned. So Abel's sacrifice, what is it? It's an offering of thanksgiving. It's a remembrance of what God did to cover their shame and it's a recognition that he too needs that same covering of God because he too is a sinner in need of grace. Now fast forward with me, we're gonna go to another part. Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22 verse one, we read this. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? Where do we even begin? This man had such a long, illustrious life. Well, okay, well, let's think about this. After what things? After calling him to leave his home and follow God on this journey of faith into the unknown, right? Where, where he's just called to trust God every step of the way. The only guarantee he has is that God won't leave him. God won't forsake him. And if he'll follow God, it will be good for him. He'll be blessed in amazing ways. And isn't that what happened? Abraham set out on this journey of faith. He followed God, not knowing where God was taking him, but he followed him. And God was faithful to keep his promises to Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? Well, here's another one. God had promised him, I will make you a great nation. Now this is a man who is in his 80s. His wife is in his 70s. She's long past the time when she would be able to bear children. This is a humanly impossible situation, right? But God says, they say, hey, you know what? If God's God, I guess he can do anything. I guess we'll just trust him. We'll trust him that if he wants to give us a child and do a miracle, he can. So they trusted him. And you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. I'm not kidding. Nothing happened for 20 years. 20 years to the point where they were in complete despair. They're like, you know what? Maybe we heard from God wrong. Maybe we messed something up. Maybe God, maybe we messed this whole thing up. Maybe we did something wrong and now God's not gonna keep his promise. Nothing happened for 20 years. But then one day, every grandma's worst nightmare Sarah was pregnant and she's like oh no right but it's it's a promise it's a promise it's good but it's you know you had to be terrifying as well and she gives birth to this baby the child of promise and after these things Abraham he has seen God do miracles after what things miracles faithfulness God's kept all of his promises even in spite of uh, overwhelming odds it should never have happened but God made it happen in in spite of all that right after these things after all these great and amazing things God tested Abraham and let me ask you has your faith ever been put to the test I know mine has I'm guessing probably yours has too uh, uh, your faith, here's what, what it means to have your faith put to the test. Your faith is put to the test when you are faced with a situation in which you have to act upon what you believe in theory, right? You have all these things, yes, I believe all these things in theory, but then a test of your faith is when you have to choose whether or not you're going to actually act on your faith, right? I'll give you an example. How many of you guys remember Heaven's Gate? This is 
back in the, the 90s, right? In 1997, 30, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate UFO cult committed suicide in San Diego, California because their leader is a man named Marshall Applewhite. He had been teaching them that there was a spaceship traveling behind the Hale-Bopp Hale comet and they had to all commit suicide on March 26, 1997 as the comet passed closest to Earth in order to beam themselves up onto the ship, right? So that day, 39 people ate applesauce filled with poison and committed mass suicide. Now, just think about this, 39, it's kind of a weird number, right? Like, you know how many people we should take on this spaceship? We should take 39 people. No, it's a weird number. Here's why it's a weird number. Because there was one guy one guy, his name was Richard Ford. He was a longtime member of the Heaven's Gate UFO cult. And when they were getting ready to eat this applesauce, guess what? This guy bailed. He's like, oh, you guys have fun on the spaceship. I think I'm going to try and stick it out here on Earth and, you know, test, test my luck. See, this was a test of faith. Do you really believe that eating the applesauce and killing yourself is going to beam you up on the spaceship or not? Well, Richard Ford decided he didn't actually believe that. See, this was a test of his faith. But I'm telling you that that's an example. A test of your faith is that moment when you're faced with a situation where you have to either act on your faith, what you say you believe, or not, right? So here's the point. At some point in your life, you, your faith will be tested. And here's the promise of God's word to you. In James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of his faith, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So Abraham's faith was tested, and here's how. God said to him in verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. Wow, right? Uh, notice the wording here. It's very interesting. It's very conspicuous, right? It's very curious. He says, take your son, your only son whom you love and I want you to sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you. Now remember, this was written at least 1,500 years before Jesus was born, maybe even earlier. And so what does Abraham do? It says in verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. You have to know, try to get inside Abraham's head at this moment, you have to know that he's terribly confused, right? His head is spinning. He's thinking, why would God promise me a son and make me wait 20 years right and then he gives me this son only to take him away from me why what would be the point of that God what is this does God really want me to kill my son God doesn't want human sacrifices it seems to be totally in opposition to the will of God but Abraham even though he's confused even though he doesn't understand what God is doing what's the plan here he decides you know what God's always been faithful to me I'm just going to I'm just going to follow him and just trust that he's got some kind of plan. So he heads out, they get to the place, and of course Isaac, who, who's not a child, he's a young man at this point, he says, hey dad, I, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just noticing here, but we don't really have anything to sacrifice, you know, all we got is a lot of wood, and what are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham says, you know, don't worry about it, son, and he says there, God will provide himself a lamb, Okay. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. So they get up to the place, right? 
still no lamb. They, they collect some rocks and they, they put them in a pile and they make a, an altar there in that place and there's still no lamb. And so Abraham, he breaks the news to Isaac and he says, son, I was really hoping it wouldn't come to this, but look, God told me to sacrifice you. That's why we don't have anything else. And I need you, son, to just trust me on this one. I need you to lay down on that pile of rocks and I'm just going to pile the wood around you. And I guess we're just going to do this. So Isaac, right, rather than fighting for his life, rather than pulling like a karate move on his dad and like booking it out of there, what does he do? He says, okay. And he lays down on this pile of rocks and wood. And Abraham raises the knife to plunge it into him. And at that very moment, at the very last possible second, God speaks and says, Abraham, look over to your side, right? There's a, there's a young ram caught in the thicket. And I want you to sacrifice that ram in place of your son. And so here's what Abraham does. He slaughters the ram, which is a male lamb, right? And Isaac Get the picture. Isaac gets off the altar and in Isaac's place, they place this lamb, this ram, and it is offered in place of him. And what is the point of that? It wasn't only to test Abraham's faith, but it's to teach us something. And that's this, that a lamb can be, can be substituted for a man. Fast forward with me again to Exodus chapter 12 and 13. That's where we started out this morning. Those are the verses that I read at the beginning. This is the event of the Passover, which to this day is the central event in the, in the Jewish history for, for Jewish people today. And here's what happened at Passover. We read part of the story, but here's the deal. For one night... In, a, in one location, an isolated location for an isolated time, God released judgment. And he released the destroyer to come and allow judgment to come there in Egypt. See, this is a preview, an isolated preview of the judgment which is to come for all who have sinned against God, right? But God provided a way for them to be saved from the destroyer. And here's what it was. They had to take a lamb without blemish and slaughter the lamb at twilight. And they had to take the blood of that lamb and they had to apply it to the doorposts of their house. You see, the destroyer is no respecter of persons. You know that? The destroyer is no respecter of persons. That night when the destroyer came, it didn't matter your pedigree. It didn't matter if you were a Jew or an Egyptian or, or whatever, right? It didn't matter if you were nice. It didn't matter if you were mean. It didn't matter if you were religious or secular, moral or licentious. Nothing mattered except for one thing, and that's this, was the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of your house. If you were covered by the blood, then you would be saved from the destroyer. You would be spared from judgment. It was an act of faith, right? To apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of your home. And it seems like such an arbitrary thing, right? You gotta imagine for these people, that had to seem like such a, such a weird request, right? So, so odd, right? I mean, of all things in the world, why this? Why do we gotta paint our door with blood? Doesn't that seem a bit weird, right? Why would we cover our doors in blood? Not only were they to slaughter a lamb, but they were to apply the blood of that lamb to the doorpost, but not only that, they were also to partake of the lamb. They had to eat it, right? They had to take it in. They had to share in that meal together with their family and they had unleavened bread. They had to partake in the lamb who had been slaughtered so that they would be saved from the judgment that was coming that night. And that night, 
the destroyer came. And judgment came upon Egypt. And in every home that night in Egypt, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. The lamb was a substitute. And every firstborn son, as they're eating dinner at the table that night, they're looking and they're realizing the only reason I'm not dead is because that lamb is. The blood of the lamb protected them from the destroyer and the judgment they deserved. So here's the point. That night, a nation was saved by the blood of the lamb. Fast forward with me, if you would, to Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 53. See, Isaiah is a very long prophecy, and, and the, the basic point of his prophecy is this. In the beginning, he's telling the people to repent and turn back to God, but they don't. They get carried off to captivity, and he speaks to them later on again in that place of captivity and this is what he tells them he says you know what even though you've been unfaithful to God even though you sinned against God God has not given up on you God still loves you he hasn't forsaken you he has a wonderful plan for you and he will restore you and I hope that 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 you know that each of you in here that that's true of you as well no matter what you've done if you've been unfaithful if you've messed up if you've turned away and walked away God has not given up on you. He is still there for you. He is still faithful to you and he wants to restore you and has a great plan for your life. And part of that prophecy that Isaiah tells them there, he tells them that there is this man. He talks about him a lot. There's this man coming. His name is the Messiah, right? He is the savior of the people. He will be their king and their liberator from all oppression. But there's something interesting about this man, something very unexpected for these people that Isaiah tells them in chapter 53. And that's this. That man, he's going to die. And not only will he die, but, but God will actually ordain his death. And not only that, but he will die. His death will be like no other death that's ever happened. His death will be substitutionary. All the wrongdoing that people have committed, all the unfaithfulness of people, this man will stand in our place before God and take the judgment that we deserve so that we can be saved. And the best image that Isaiah can give, he gives it here in chapter 53. He says that our Savior will be a man who is like a lamb. Right? He says he will be a man who is like a lamb. He will be led to the slaughter. And without any opposition on his part, he will allow his life to be taken so that we can live. What Isaiah is telling us is this, that the Savior will be a man who is like a lamb. Some time goes by, and this is the last one. We're going to fast forward again to the Gospel of John, where we see John the Baptist, and he's baptizing people in the River Jordan. His job, his commission by God is to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. He's baptizing people in the Jordan, and he looks up as he's got this crowd of people around him, and he sees Jesus walking towards him at the river that day. And he declares to the crowd, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he's sharing in the Last Supper, just as, as we remembered him today and we took part in the Last Supper. Think back to that, that Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And if you remember specifically, what kind of dinner was it? It was a Passover dinner. Remember, he told, he told his disciples, go rent a room because I want to have a place where we can share the Passover together. Now, um, last year, one thing we did here at church, and we've done it in years past too, is that there was a Seder dinner um, which a lot of us attended, which is a Seder dinner. This is the traditional Jewish Passover meal. 
And there are a lot of traditions. The, the whole meal is full of these traditions, right? There are sayings that are said at certain times, and there's a, there's a whole rhythm to the event. And, and there's a man who takes the role of the father, and he essentially presides over the meal. And his job is to stand up at each, you know, different part of the meal, and he will introduce the meal, and he'll explain what's going on, right? And so if you look at the Last Supper, you have to see it in that way. This is a Passover meal, and Jesus is in the place of the Father, the presider over the meal. And he stands up and he explains what each element of the meal is. And so that's why he stands up, and what does he say? He takes the bread, and he holds it up, and all the disciples are expecting him to say the usual Passover Seder dinner mantra, which is, this is the bread of our affliction. This is the bread of our affliction. Our fathers suffered in the wilderness so that we could be free. But that's not what Jesus said. Instead, he says something new. He says something unexpected, which would have been a surprise to these people. I mean, for so many years, this is what they say at this time. This is the bread of our affliction. But what does Jesus stand up and say? He says, this bread is my body. This is my body broken for you, given for you. This is the bread of of my affliction is what Jesus says. This is what I am going to suffer. I am going to suffer in order to give you the ultimate freedom. The ultimate freedom that Moses ultimately looked to, right? The ultimate freedom that Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve desired. The ultimate freedom. And that's this. It's not just physical. It's not just political. But it is freedom from sin and death itself. It's freedom from the truest oppression. And this, again, this would have come as a shock. Jesus is saying, this is my body at the Passover meal. And if you take a, a second to look around that table in your mind's eye, that Passover table, that meal that night, there's something you can't help but notice, and that's this. There's the bread, right? Jesus breaks it. There's the cup, the wine, they drink it. And there's the lamb, right, which is the, the most important part of the Passover meal. But wait a second. Where is the lamb? There's no lamb on the table. You ever realize that? There's no lamb on the table. That's the most important element of the entire meal is this lamb that they eat together. See, Jesus had set this whole thing up. Remember, he had organized the meal. He was presiding over it, and he had removed the main element, which was the lamb. He removed the lamb because Jesus was declaring that night to them, I am the lamb. I am the lamb. The lamb who was sacrificed for Adam and Eve. The lamb of Abel. The lamb who took the place of Isaac. The lamb who saved the Israelites from the destroyer. I am the man who Isaiah spoke of who is like a lamb. That's me. All of it. It's all about me. It's been pointing to me. It's been building up my death, which is going to happen. This is the central event of everything that God has been building up to since the beginning of time. Do you see the progression of the story of the lamb? In Abel, we see a lamb sacrificed for an individual. In Abraham, we see a lamb sacrificed for a family. In the Passover, it's a lamb which is given as a sacrifice to spare a nation. And in Isaiah's prophecy, we see that lamb is actually a man. And in Jesus, we see that man who is a lamb who takes away not just the sins of an individual or a family or a nation, but who takes away the sins of the world. 
That night after that dinner, Jesus would be taken to the cross. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he would be sacrificed in our place as our substitute. That our sins might be covered. That we might be saved from the destroyer. That whoever applies his blood to their life might receive mercy instead of judgment. That might, they might receive life in place of death. And there's one more chapter to this story of the lamb. And that's the final chapter. In the book of Revelation where we see the Lamb, Jesus, seated on the throne for all of eternity. Here's God's word to you today. Here's God's word to me today. It's this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb. That's what John the Baptist said when Jesus was walking towards him. And I believe that that's God's word for us today. You need to behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You know, to behold the lamb, it means not just to look at him. It doesn't mean to say, oh, there he is. It means to gaze upon him. It means to lock your eyes on him. It means to look intently upon him. To behold him means to consider the lamb of God, to ponder what he has done for you, to let it sink in deep into your heart, to let it affect your life. And if anyone is here today, and I would speak to you, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never done that, you need today to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to see and consider what Jesus Christ has done for you, and you need to put your faith in him and apply his blood to your life that you might be saved. And if you're here and you've been a believer for a long time, I want to tell you this, you need to behold the Lamb of God. Turn your gaze to him. Consider what he has done for you and who he is for you presently. And and I'll just say this in closing. You know, I think this is such an important message for us because we live in a culture that is busy, right? I I would even go as far as to say that it's chronically busy. And I I am such a, I'm so in that too. You know that? You know, I'm just, uh, I'm a busy guy. And in fact, I'd even say that I like being busy. It makes me feel good to be busy because that's the kind of culture we live in where, you know, we're just busy. If you talk to anybody, you know, and you'd be like, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? They're, within a few sentences, they're going to tell you, yeah, you know, I'm doing real well, but I've just been really busy lately, right? We're always, that's just part of the way we talk. It's part of the way we live. I'm the same way. I keep very busy. But here's the thing about busyness. And we need to think about this. The busyness can be an enemy of your soul. And and like I said, it's something I'm being challenged with a lot lately. Busyness, it, it will slowly eat away and destroy your soul. It will erode your relationship with your spouse. It will erode your relationship with your kids and your family. And of course, it will erode your relationship with God. Again, like I said, this is something I've been challenged with lately. We've just come off a very busy time uh, with all of the flood relief stuff and and doing outreach and really trying to reach out in the community. And like I said, I enjoy being busy, but, but I've been reminded lately how busyness can be the enemy of my soul. And, uh, and it's so important for me and you that we take time to behold the Lamb, to lift him up and behold the Lamb, you know, uh, who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we do every time we gather here together. We open up the scriptures and we behold the Lamb of God. We take communion and we behold the Lamb of God. We sing these songs of worship to behold together the Lamb of God, but all of us too 
throughout the day, every day. We need to not just be busy, but take time to behold the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. So I'll finish with saying this. He is your covering. Behold the lamb. He is your covering. By his death, he covered your sin. He, he covered your shame with his innocent blood that you might stand before God once again unashamed. He is your substitute. He took your place in death that you might take his place in life. And he is your salvation. If you would have met an Israelite after they had come out of Egypt or in the, in the desert of Sinai or in the wilderness... And you would have asked them, who are you people and what are you doing? You know what they would have said? They would have said, I was an alien in a foreign land. And I was under penalty of death. I couldn't save myself. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And even though I couldn't save myself, I was saved. I was brought out of slavery. I was set free. And now God is in our midst. And even though I'm currently walking in the wilderness, God is taking me to the promised land. And you know what's cool? That is exactly to the word what a Christian can say. Who are you and what are you about? That's exactly what a Christian says because everything in the history of the world, everything in the Bible, it climaxed on that day when Jesus Christ became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Lord, you are our covering. You cover our sin. You cover our shame that we might stand before you once again. Lord, thank you that you are our substitute. You take our place. Lord, just like that ram took the place of Isaac there on the altar, Lord, thank you that you took our place in death, that we might have your place in everlasting life. Lord, thank you that you are our salvation. I pray for anyone here today who has not yet fully, fully put their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you move in their heart that they would do that today. And for us who know you and who have put our trust in you, Lord, might we not just be busy people, but might we behold the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. We thank you for who you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead.